All right, good morning. Welcome to Hope and Anchor Church. It is great seeing you here today. I'm looking forward to uh, spending time in, uh, in Scripture today. I'm looking forward to spending time in prayer and in song and in the sweet fellowship. Uh, something important happens, as you know, when the church gathers to worship because we've all come with a shared intention, an intention to make a big deal out of, out of Jesus. And so I know that all of us have had different experiences this week, some high, some low, some... Uh, great, some really challenging, but here we are. We're here to do something that's meaningful, something that's beyond ourselves, bigger than ourselves. We get to bring our praise and our worship to Jesus because He's worthy. And so I'm glad I get to do that with you. And so, hey, today we are start, we're jumping back into our Rock of Ages series, which has been our teaching series on the Apostle Peter, right. We spent the first eight weeks, I believe, uh, just kind of walking with Peter as he interacted with Jesus, kind of get to know who he was, how uh, his interaction with Jesus shaped him, formed him into the, the, the leader of the church that he became. And then we got into uh, 1 Peter, uh, his letter, his first letter. And that's where we are today. I think today we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses oh, 22 through ver chapter 2, verse 3. So this is week 14 of the series, and today's message is called Crave. Uh, as a, a student of history and of mankind, I've learned some lessons over the years. I've learned some lessons specifically from things like snowstorms and pandemics. I've learned some lessons from snowstorms and pandemics. And here's, here's a, in a nutshell what those lessons uh, are, or that lesson is, actually. We don't deal well with threats to our supply chains. We don't deal well with uh, disruptions to our comfort. You see, we get wind of something soon to be in short supply, and we kind of lose our minds. Anyone guilty of this? It's like, I need milk and I need bread. I don't know why that's in us. Where that comes from in our prehistory is like, oh my goodness, things are going bad. Get milk and bread. But anyway, that's what we do. Uh, we rush to the store. We fill our shopping carts to the brim as visions of dystopian apocalypse dance in our heads. Catastrophic imaginings and subsequent panic buying cause real problems for us and for those who can't get to the store in time. Fears of shortages, they lead uh, to a rush on existing supplies, which then creates and exacerbates the problem, making a bad situation far worse. It's almost like our fear becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, oh, the stores aren't going to have enough. Everyone get to the store and buy it all up as fast as you can. And then we end up creating the problem we feared. First, during COVID, remember COVID, it was this pandemic. There was this virus. Can I skip this part? Okay. You're, during COVID, uh, you remember what we panicked about and we went and bought like crazy? Toilet. toilet paper. We freaked out about toilet paper. And during COVID, it was toilet paper. We, people cleared the shelves, stockpiling Charmin, uh, imagining a future, I guess, in which toilet paper squares were currency. Like you're bartering on the like, you know, uh, on the, you know, on the ruins of society with squares of toilet paper. You know, like your wallet's filled with like folded things of toilet paper squares. At the time of this writing, which many of you know, I'm writing sermons uh, several months ahead of time. But at the time of this writing, guess what it was? Baby formula. 
Now, maybe you didn't have a baby, so this didn't affect you, but baby formula was a big deal there for a while. Baby formula. I'm not sure what happened. Uh, we didn't start having a bunch more babies. Uh, and indeed, imitation breast milk is not mined from rare or precious materials. It's not mined from the earth like gold. Uh, but apparently, a factory somewhere shut down due to unsanitary production and suspected contamination in some of the samples. So because of that, the whole factory shut down. Now, why did this happen? What caused this? Well, it was probably due to, take your pick, coronavirus, the war in Ukraine, Obamacare, big formulas, capitalist greed, racism, fill in the Blake president, whatever. You know, we always have some reason, some deep, darker secret conspiracy underlying the actual disruption, but there it was. The, sh the factory shut down. Uh, the news headlines were filled with, there isn't enough baby formula. News reports were filled with video clips. Cameras panning across empty grocery store shelves. Reporters holding microphones out to parents with crying children lined up at soup kitchens. And politicians pledging to solve this crisis with legislation. Solve this crisis with emergency declarations, because that's what politicians do, right? The government said it would take four to six months, but they will... They will make darn sure that baby formula is back on the shelf because they are ramping up uh, the allocation of emergency funds to both boost production and import foreign supplies of baby formula. I think about the infants who actually were trying to rely on that formula. I think about those infants and I think about those haggard parents trying to explain the situation to their child. Um, and trying to console them with the political promises. Trying to, to console their, their, their crying, hungry baby with the political plans and promises. I imagine it's pretty futile in the middle of the night when a baby is hungry and there's no milk available, natural or factory produced. Doesn't matter the quality of your presentation of the facts or the headlines, the baby doesn't care, right? When the baby's hungry, the baby's hungry. Once a baby gets it in his or her head that it's time to eat, there isn't much you as a parent can do to convince him or her otherwise. Can I get a witness? Anyone had a baby that was hungry in the middle of the night and you couldn't get the, the, the bottle filled or ready fast enough? The baby will not be satisfied. All the world's charms and all the world's purposes fade before a newborn's craving for milk. Until the baby is fed, no one will rest, and the baby will not be satisfied. A hungry newborn is a tyrant. Anyone? <laughs> Alyssa? <laughs> yeah. A hungry newborn is a tyrant. A picture, a full-on Craving, captivation with a thought, the thought of eating, nourishment, of being satisfied with milk, with pure milk. Now, as adults, the closest thing we have to this experience that newborns have is called what's being hangry. Does anyone know, know the meaning of this? Hangry, what it is to be hungry. You're so hungry that you're actually emotionally affected. You're so hungry, uh, you become angry. That's actually where the word comes from. Hungry and angry had a baby and it's hangry. You're hangry. You're willing to burn the world down for a bowl of soup, right? And we get there. We've been there. Anyone had experiences with being hangry? Anyone maybe woke up this morning a little hangry? 
Yeah, I see that hand, Roger. <laughs> we know what it feels like to have a desperate craving. Now, as we turn our attention to the Apostle Paul again for this week, guess what? The Apostle Paul was married. Did you know this? We don't think about the disciples or the apostles as being family men, but he was married. He had a mother-in-law, which means he had a wife, right? He was married and like, likely had children. So he no doubt understood infant cravings as he commended believers in Jesus to crave pure spiritual milk. He had firsthand experience with what it was like to, to have a child that was craving, craving milk. So he said, hey, I commend you as followers of Jesus to crave pure spiritual milk. As followers of Jesus, we are to set our hearts on obedience to the truth. We are to love one another deeply. We are to get rid of all evil behavior. And we are to cry out for the nourishment that comes from the Word of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, through uh, 122 through ver chapter 2, verse 3, Peter exhorts us, he exhorts his readers in there in the first century, but he's also ex exhorting us toward a life that is rooted in God's Word, a life that is, that is committed to obedience, that is fueled by love, and is growing day by day into that full experience of salvation. The full experience of salvation as we pursue, on purpose, intentionally, holiness. Be holy as God is holy. That's like the framework in which we step into in following Jesus. Like, all right, now be holy as God is holy. That sets the north star for us. Like, pursue holiness. Live as God intends. So, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's start there. Now, in chapter 1, find verse 22, and we're going to go through chapter 2, verse 3. So, let's read that together. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment. Now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. So as we mentioned, us humans, we have a natural tendency toward cravings. We have a natural tendency toward cravings. And that's Christians too. People who are following Jesus, we're also given to cravings naturally. Church people, just like everybody else, can end up craving all kinds of things. Maybe you found yourself at times in your life craving control, craving power, craving uh, entertainment or, or soothing teaching, maybe an eased conscience or riches and affluence. The list goes on and on. We can start craving all kinds of weird stuff, crazy stuff, lesser things. We are craving creatures. But here, Paul, Peter tells us that we as Christ followers must first and foremost crave something. Crave a certain thing. We are to crave, first and foremost, the pure spiritual milk of God's Word. 
which is the good news that was preached to us, first by Christ and then by the apostles. As Jesus' people, we shouldn't be satisfied until we drink deeply of God's life-giving word. We shouldn't uh, be satisfied until we've drunk deeply of the truth and the joy that comes from living according to God's way and God's will. Don't stop until you've drunk deeply of that which truly satisfied. The pure spiritual milk of God's word in the good news. So, Peter talks in this passage a lot about the Word of God. So when Peter says the Word of God, what do you think he means? When I say the Word of God, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Okay, the Bible, Scripture. That's the Bible, Scripture. Thanks, Grady. <laughs> um, yeah, but here's the problem there. If he just means the Bible, what could be the problem then in that first century context? we didn't have the Bible quite yet. We didn't have this yet. So maybe he means something a little bit more, a little bit bigger. Um, understand, Peter wasn't somehow envisioning the book that you're holding in your hands right now, the 66 books of the, uh, the biblical canon, the Old Testament and New Testament that make up our Bible today. In fact, when Peter wrote this, the New Testament uh, didn't exist yet. It wasn't outlined yet. It wasn't... Uh, identified or delineated yet. It's like, these are in, these are out. These are the books. It wasn't quite a thing yet. So what does he mean? Now, in a way, Peter was referring to the Old Testament writings. He was very much so referring to the Old Testament writings when he talks about Scripture. And he would have also been talking about the apostles' teachings about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which were in circulation at the time. Even when there was a letter written to a specific church, it was not uncommon for that same letter to be passed on to the other churches. So there were letters being passed around from the apostles to the different churches and already being considered Scripture, already being considered inspired and authoritative because of their authorship and because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in those works. So, you had the Old Testament and you had some of the Apostles' letters floating around. Uh, so, what we talk about when we talk about the Bible, and this is going to be challenging a little bit, we, here we detour into the weeds a little bit, and I hope to do a good job here, but when we talk about the Bible as the, Bible as the Word of God, what we're, have, what we're talking about is the Bible is considered to be a special revelation of God. Okay? A uh, general revelation of God. Uh, God has revealed himself in creation. God has revealed himself in our conscience. He has written eternity on the hearts of man. It's like his general revelation, we have this sense that there is something other and else. <laughs> something behind that which we, that we see or seem around us. That's general revelation, but then God breaks into our reality with special revelation. And there's two primary means of special revelation. One is Scripture, but the second is Jesus. Jesus is a special revealing of God and His way and His will among us. So Jesus is a special revelation, but we consider Scripture also to be a special revelation. That which we know about God, that which we know about Jesus, and that which we know about His will in the world and His work in the world comes from this book. Love it or hate it, this is how we know. This is the window through which we look and see something of what God wants us to know and who God wants us to be. Does that make sense? Special revelation. So, uh, the scriptures that Peter would have been familiar with and his readers would have been familiar with, 
they, uh, uh, the, the, let's see, the, the, that which the apostles were writing about all took place against the backdrop of the Old Testament. That which his readers would have been very familiar with. Uh, those letters being circulated, they clarified uh, the Old Testament prophecies and they gathered those echoes of the Old Testament promises and Peter takes all those and he draws them to their proper focus point, which is Jesus. He draws our attention to Jesus, which is God's Word made flesh. God's Word made flesh. The one who has brought salvation to us and in doing so has fulfilled Scripture and has given us eternal life. Do you see all this? All the apostles are doing is oftentimes looking back to the Old Testament and gathering those things and bringing them into proper focus and alignment to bring us to Christ. To Christ. It was the apostles' writings, the letters from Paul, James, John, and others, that announced the great salvation that we have in Jesus, which is called, who is called over and over again, the incarnate Word. The Word of God made flesh. But the Word of God means so much more than the Bible. The Word of God, in a way, means even more than just Jesus during his 33 years upon the earth, right? The Word of God is the life-giving, universe-making essence of God which goes forth to make and remake, to create and recreate God's good creation. You understand that? Behind what we see in the Bible, behind what we see even uh, from Bethlehem till Calvary, is the Word of God, the creating and recreating, the making and remaking essence of God that always goes forth. The Word of God is that which is eternally saying, let there be. The Word of God is that which is, 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 that which is eternally saying, let there be, and, and calls into existence life from death, is eternally calling formlessness into formed creation. This is why in John 1, 1, everyone probably knows this passage, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, in the beginning, before all this was, there was the Word, the Logos. The Word of God was there. And that was the Word that He sent into the world to make it, and that is the Word He sent into the world to redeem it. The Word of God. So what does this mean? The Word of God is the heartbeat of the cosmos. The Word of God, when we hear about the Word, we read about the Word of God, the Word of God is the heartbeat of the cosmos. It is creating and sustaining all that is. It, is. it is working all things together for God's glory and for the good of those He loves. That is the Word of God. The Word of God is that which put on humanity and dwelt among us as Emmanuel, as God with us, Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh. In the Incarnation, the Word of God made flesh. So yes, the Word of God is expressed and revealed to us in the words of the Law, the Prophets, the Gospels, and the letters of the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament, and in Christ Himself during the Incarnation, during His time on earth. Uh, but we must not lose sight of this fact. Jesus is eternal. We must, you know, from a theological, in theological language, Jesus is co-equal coexistent and co-eternal with God the Father. As part of the Trinity, He always has been. So what happened in the special revelation of Christ is that special 
temporal moment when he came and was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He lived a defined, measurable life in a defined, measurable place and did things. He had a trade. He did these things and he had these encounters and conflicts and he died this death. He came into our reality. So Jesus, coexistent, co-equal, and co-eternal with God, came into our reality in the special revelation of the Incarnation to dwell among us. So, immersion in the Word of God. Immersion in the Word of God is a deep dwelling in His revelation through Scripture. This is critical. As a Christ follower, we must commit ourselves to dwelling deeply in the Word of God, becoming a student of the Word, or as Psalm 119.11 says, hiding the Word in our heart so we might not sin against Him. We dwell... We immerse ourselves in the Word of God, a deep dwelling in His revelation through Scripture. It's critical. It is a necessary part of our life with God. There's no growing, vibrant life with Christ without knowing the Word. There's no way to ignore Scripture and grow as a follower of Jesus. You have to know what, your, what, the, what the goal of our righteousness is, who it looks like. It's Christ Himself. So we must learn what Christ has demonstrated for us. So you have to be a student of the Word. Dwell deeply in the revelation of Scripture. But deep devotion to the Word of God made flesh, Jesus is the life-giving source from which we are reborn, through which we are awakened into life everlasting. Um, this isn't in my notes, so I should probably stay on track here, but, you know, information, the Bible itself can't save us. Information can't save us. Participation in church can't save us. Only incarnation can save us. Only following the actual Jesus Christ, the one who came, who lived, who died, and rose again, that's what leads us into transformation. So it's not information or participation, but it's the transformation that comes through faith in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. Hope that makes sense. I know we're kind of in the weeds here, but it comes through Christ alone. That's how we are reborn. Only through faith in God's Word, which comes to us in Christ Jesus, are we saved. By this dwelling and devotion, we are born again and raised to new life. Okay, we're done with that detour into the weeds. Okay, we're back to this passage now. Let's look at verse 22. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. Now, a firm grasp on this great salvation that Peter's talking about, uh, this salvation that Jesus has provided for us, it must be expressed in love. Okay, this shouldn't come as a surprise. If you've been in the Bible, if you've been in church, been following Jesus for a while, you know that love's a big deal, right? Our great salvation in Christ that comes through faith must be expressed in love. Love for God and love for who else? Love for others. Love for our neighbors. Love for God and love also for each other. Because we were cleansed of our sins by obeying the truth, by our coming to faith in Jesus and aligning our lives, surrendering our lives to Him and His way, we were cleansed by our sins by obeying the truth. We must then show sincere love to each other because we have become a family, a community of, of truth dwellers and truth embracers. We are marked by and centered by the truth that has been revealed by God in Christ and in Scripture. The word deeply here at the end of verse 22, it connotes a sense of effort. You don't accidentally love deeply. 
It takes effort. It takes intention. Love deeply connotes a sense of effort, of depth, of duration, an endeavor that is constant and will continue until the end. You can't say to someone, hey, I love you deeply today. Tomorrow, I don't know. It's up for grabs. But today, I love you deeply. No, there's a duration to that. There's an unendingness to it. It's like, no, I am a deep lover of you. The Christian fellowship is to be marked by what Howard Snyder calls winsome intimacy. Winsome intimacy, he describes it this way. Winsome intimacy, where masks are dropped, honesty prevails, and that sense of communication and community beyond the human abounds. Where there is literally the fellowship of and in the Holy Spirit. Literally. The fellowship of and in the Holy Spirit happening in our midst. That's what happens when we pursue winsome intimacy, deep love with and for each other. So verse 23 through 25, let's, let's check in on that. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. Their grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. Now this loving deeply, this loving deeply, it isn't just a call to increased effort in our own strengths on Sundays only while at church activities. Okay, this isn't a call to be really serious about it on Sunday mornings. This is a pervasive, overarching, comprehensive effort to love deeply. Our loving and our living of the truth together is constant. It is to be fueled and sustained by God's word because our lives together will stretch into eternity Oh, what? You know, in our American evangelical Christianity, we have a pretty hyper-individualistic understanding of this, that I trusted Jesus, I got saved by Jesus, and I'm going to go sit on a cloud in a diaper and strum a harp with Jesus for eternity. That's my, that's my plan. It's pretty much just me. But the call to follow Jesus, if you look at it historically and biblically, the call to follow Jesus is the call into Christian community. And guess what, guys? That Christian community is not just a Sunday morning thing. It is not just a during-your-lifetime thing. The fellowship of brothers and sisters under the Lordship of Jesus is an everlasting now-until-forever thing. Oh, dear. We better get used to it, right? We better start to learn and like each other, maybe even love, right? <laughs> Uh, in ourselves, we are very temporary. As Peter describes, we're very temporary. We are like grass of the field or flowers of the field. We're here today, gone tomorrow. But the Word of God establishes us in something very eternal. The Word of God itself, by faith in Jesus, brings us into life everlasting. We're part of something through faith in Jesus that is far more vast and far more eternal than you could even imagine. It's more than this here and now. It's even more than the span of your years as a living person. Your trust in Jesus has led you into something everlasting. That's pretty amazing to me. So our decisions now to love or to not love another person, it has everlasting implications. Our decisions now to love or to not love others well, have those, those decisions have everlasting implications. Obedience to the truth is central to salvation. Why? Because true obedience outfits us for the new life we receive by faith in Jesus. True love helps us become the kind of person that is right at home in the work of God in the world. Right at home, outfitted well for Christ and His kingdom by faith. There's a critical link between what we believe and how we live. 
Okay? There's a critical link in the Christian life between how, what we think and how we live. Okay? The, the fancy words here would be orthodoxy, right thinking, and what's the counterpart? Orthopraxy, right thinking, but also right practice, right living. And the reason this needs to be brought up is there's often this bifurcated disconnection in the American church. You've got the progressive liberal church that cares a lot about justice, social justice and things like that, but they've really abandoned the heart of Christianity, the, the ancient creeds that talk about Jesus, the Christ, God in the flesh, come to redeem mankind of their sin and draw them into recreation and new life. That's been completely abandoned. But on the other end of that spectrum, in the, in the evangelical, more conservative church, you've got people that care all about getting right with God through faith in Jesus and telling others about Jesus, but really caring very little about social justice, about making things right in the world, uh, helping uh, reveal and represent the kingdom in all of its restoring and remaking ways here and now. Do you see the difference? We have this either-or approach in the American church that leaves this vast middle ground, and I'm afraid that's where Jesus might be actually leading us to be a both-and kind of church, that we care, we understand that what God has revealed to us in Scripture and in Christ is true and meaningful and life-giving, but that affects how we live in the world. The things we, we work toward, the ways we spend ourselves in service to the poor and the oppressed, the overlooked and the marginalized. We have to bring those two things together. Our thinking, our theology, and our ethics. Our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. Scott McKnight explains it this way. Ethics, then, is a part of theology. It's not something added to theology in a moment of practical urgency. Ethical decisions, in fact, are logical extensions of theology. Do you hear that? Ethical decisions... Decisions we make out here in interactions with others are a logical extension of what we believe about God, what we believe about our life with God. Ethical decisions, in fact, are a logical extension of theology. Without solid theology, that is, a theology that reflects on the character and actions of God, there is no foundation for ethics. If one's ethics is not rooted in Christian theology, it becomes nothing more than a pluralistic option thrown into the winds of cultural changes. Did you hear that? If one's ethics is not rooted in Christian theology, it becomes nothing more than a pluralistic option thrown into the winds of cultural changes. So there must be congruency, agreement between what we believe and how we live in the world. We have to bring those things together, all for the glory of God. Understanding that the work of the Holy Spirit in our life leads us to, to right thinking, yes, but also to right living in the world. It cannot be, it must not be, it ought not be one or the other. It has to be both and. Okay, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let's finish up here. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. Because our theology and our ethics, our beliefs and our living walk together, Peter says plainly, you must get rid of all evil behavior, those things that corrupt and undermine winsome intimacy, those things that erode and battle against true Christian fellowship. Get rid of them. Be on guard. Be vigilant. Instead of satisfying the desires of the flesh, instead of following your old sin habits, 
crave instead the pure spiritual milk of the gospel and cry out, cry out for its nourishment. And there's a sense of urgency there. I mean, sometimes we're a little uncomfortable. Like, well, I'm not going to cry out. I'm a little more reserved. And Cry out. Wail for it. I must have this nourishment. If I don't have this, I will die. Cry out for the nourishment, this pure spiritual milk of the gospel. Peter's assumption is that once a follower of Jesus has tasted God's kindness in saving us, we will daily desire more and more of it. And we won't be satisfied otherwise. We won't be content with anything else. Once we've tasted and seen that God is good, nothing else will satisfy. All those other cravings will pale in comparison to the desire to have more and more of Christ. A craving ought to rise in us. A desire for more alignment in beliefs and actions. More alignment in our thoughts and our living. Leading us into the full experience of salvation that Peter talks about. The full experience of salvation. That phrase is intriguing to me. Leading us into the full experience of salvation. It makes it sound like it's possible to only get part of it. To miss out. For God to be offering us something and we're like, hmm... No thanks, I'll just nibble. I'll just nibble on some like little things here and there. No, there's a full experience of salvation being offered to us. Let's pursue it. Let's step into it. Let's live it. Let's experience it. The full experience of salvation. Many believers are malnourished today. Many believers have grown accustomed to a watered-down, contaminated milk. For they have been failing to obey the truth, and they have frankly been failing to love each other deeply. As, Paul, as Peter commends us. The American church is not marked by true, deep love for others. Is that shocking to you? Is that surprising? We're not known for our devotion and our fidelity to God and His Word. We're, we're not known for loving each other well as we've been commanded. Jesus said, when asked, what is the greatest commandment, what does He say? Two things as one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This vertical and horizontal dynamic brought together in one. Many believers are malnourished today with watered-down, contaminated milk. For they've been failing to obey the truth. They've been failing to love each other deeply. They've been half-hearted. They've been settling for inconsistency in living out their faith. And as a result, they have been failing to thrive in their life with Christ. They've been getting a small sip of pure milk on Sunday mornings, but they are drinking contaminated, artificial substitutes the rest of the week. And there's no way you can be healthy. There's no way you can be thriving if you're not drinking of that pure spiritual milk every single day. Imagine if you only ate once a week. Would you thrive? Only when you came together at one place at one time, it's like, all right, this is the place and the time where I actually eat. And that'd be weird. Your body would rebel. It's like, no, no. It's like you don't eat all week, but you go to Golden Corral on Sunday morning. Oh, I better get this chocolate fountain. I better get all this stuff in. You know, you try to cram in 10,000, 14,000 calories in one meal. You better bring extra pants. That's all I'm saying. I mean, it's not going to go well. Likewise, spiritually speaking, we can't survive and thrive on one interaction with the pure spiritual milk of the Word once a week. That's not how we're made. And that's not what we're called to do or be. That's not how we thrive. 
Nursing, our, nursing ourselves on, so, on a desire, the pursuit of social influence or approval. Nursing ourselves on a desire for career success or control and power. Lust, greed, sensuality, pleasure. Many Christians have no desire for truth. And as a result, they have a faith that is weak and anemic. Many people who call themselves Christians and populate the chairs in a church every week, they really at root have no appetite for the Word of God. They have no desire to actually taste that milk. They're like, mm, I'm lactose intolerant. Mm. I don't do that. I mean, I go through the forms. I, I get almond milk, spiritually speaking. But, you know, they don't know and they don't want that anymore because it's been drowned out. The, 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 the sweeter, saccharine tastes of the world have drowned out their desire for truth. But this is clearly not God's intention for us. We are to pass from the temporary life of being like grass and flowers into the eternal life that is found in and through God's Word. So today, all this is leading to this lessons. Today, we may each of us allow the Holy Spirit to kindle or rekindle an appetite within us, a hunger to know more of God's kindness and to crave, to truly crave the pure milk of the gospel. That's my desire. And guess what? That's God's desire for you, that you would crave. So let's cry out today. Let's long for that and be satisfied with nothing else. Pursue and be satisfied. Be content in nothing else but the real, true, life-giving word of God. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray. Father, let's, let's just sit with you. God, we need to hear you speak. We need you to call us back to a place of, of righteousness, of faithfulness, planting our feet in the truth of your word, stoking within us a desire to experience the fullness of salvation, that which has been afforded to us through Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection. Lord, that we like newborns would crave that pure spiritual milk because we desire to grow into the fullness and stature of Christ, we want to thrive. We don't want to leave anything untasted or untried. We want to know all that's being offered to us. So God, help us become students of the Word, the way you've revealed uh, yourself in Scripture, yes. But let us know deeply Christ Jesus. May we live according, uh, drenched, saturated in the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. God, may your church become known more for that which we're supposed to be known for. I mean, bring the persecution, bring the rejection and the misunderstandings if they're for the right reasons. Lord, may we be known for people who are devoted to you to live faithful lives and according to Scripture, but also to love others well according to Scripture. That we're doing the difficult, sometimes challenging work of bringing the loving God and the loving others together into faithful synthesis. That our ethics, our theology and our ethics, our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy would be in alignment. And that they'd be something that we could truly, honestly, and faithfully offer to you in our prayers and in our lives. As individuals and as a church. That's my prayer. So God, may your Holy Spirit do a work today. Help us see the things we've been craving, those lesser things those lesser things that have been drowning out our appetite for the pure milk of the gospel, the pure spiritual milk of the word of God. God, clear our palate. Help us have a true desire to know. 
And may we not be satisfied in anything else. May we not be content with lesser things. Lord, lead us in the way everlasting. We're meant to be more than just grass of the field and flowers of the field. We're meant to be part of an eternal family, living under the lordship of Jesus, under his faithful life-giving rule and reign. So God, I pray that we'd be more and more outfitted for that, more and more well-suited, more and more bearing that family resemblance, we ask. Lord, we make this prayer in Jesus' name. All right, we're going to share communion this morning. Uh, we're going to approach the Lord's table, and this is always a special time. And uh, this is kind of a picture of that. Not only are we remembering what Christ has done for us through his sacrifice, but we're, we're expressing something in this, like, I crave this. I crave communion with you. I crave union and fellowship with you. And so as we take the cup and as we take the bread, it's that symbolizing, that signifying. It was like, yes, this is who I am. This is who I desire to become more and more. So remind me in every fiber of my being, remind me of the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for me. So as we prepare for that, we're just going to take a few minutes of reflection, of introspection, of preparation. Maybe you need to sit and have a conversation with the Lord. Bible says, don't approach this table with un in an unprepared manner. Say, search me and know me, God. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me in the way everlasting. We want to be prepared to come and rightly partake and remember what Christ has done for us and who we are in Him. And so that's the first thing to do. Spend time in prayer and introspection. And then when you're ready... I'll be come down the center aisle and uh, take the bread, take the cup, and then return to your seat down the outside aisles. Then once everyone is served, we will partake together. Uh, one other thing you should know here at Open Anchor, we practice what's called open communion. You don't have to have ever been here before. What matters is that you've committed your life to following Jesus. Jesus is Lord. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to participate in this, which Jesus said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So if you can remember surrendering your life to Jesus, being brought to new life through faith in him, man, please partake with us. So come when you're ready.